I'm Kate Daniels. We know there is some imbalance in the wealth distribution in our country, and we're about to get some really important insights now as we meet Lisa Conyers, co-author with Phil Harvey of Welfare for the Rich, How Your Tax Dollars End Up in Millionaires' Pockets, and What You Can Do About It. Lisa Conyers, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I am so appreciative and just amazed, overwhelmed with this new book that you have co-written, Welfare for the Rich. I mean, we perhaps think this is going on, but to have it here really outlined with all these different chapters on different parts of our society that are benefiting, and I think we've seen it here even uh, during the time of pandemic when the government has been giving out monies to individuals, to people, and made company money available. But a lot of it we heard was going to some big corporations that, you know, we scratched our heads and thought, like, why are they getting it? Why are the banks getting that? And I think we get to see some of that from this book, Welfare for the Rich. Am I on point with that? Well, you are on point with that. And, you know, it's funny because the book went to press right before, you know, the COVID pandemic hit. And, you know, of course, now we've seen all this money go to, as you said, you know, wealthy people, wealthy corporations. And it would have been a great last chapter for the book, but <laughs> it came a little too late. But, um, you know, you, you're up in Seattle and there's some good examples up there. You know, Boeing got, you know, massive amount of money out of the Paycheck Protection Program and other, you know, companies up there have, have benefited greatly from that. And, you know, it's one of those programs that started with good intentions. You know, I think we thought, oh, well, we've got to help people stay in business while this thing, you know, is going on. But unfortunately, the people who knew how to take advantage of the program real quickly um, ate up a lot of that money. And a lot of small businesses haven't gotten a dime yet. So that's definitely a good example of welfare for the rich, which is just, you know, our taxpayer dollars going to the federal government and the federal government turning around and giving it to wealthy people. And it's and we have really heard that from the small businesses saying that we are struggling. We don't know that we can keep doors open. And, and they are businesses that could, but they need this support, and yet they don't have all the wherewithal to uh, wind their way in and get those monies before those big corporations who know how to work the system get in there. Well, right. And that's exactly what happened is that, you know, for one thing, a lot of those loans, you had to have a previous relationship with a bank, you know, and you had to have a you know previous relationship with a bank that, you know, was was had access to those funds. So um, that tends to be, you know, bigger, well-established companies bigger banks, um, and you, in many cases, accounting firms and lawyers were the ones informing their clients that this money was available. Well, if you're a small business, you may not have an accountant or a lawyer. You may just be doing everything yourself, you know, so you weren't notified that you were, you know, able to access those funds, and that's really what happened. A lot of the big companies, they said, oh, our accounting firms got a hold of us as soon as they heard about it and said, hey, apply, apply now. So, you know, it was one more example of the wealthy just sort of having, you know, being a step ahead of the game and benefiting. And um, as you said, a lot of small businesses who could have really used the money just never were able to access it. It was too late. You know, the money was gone by the time 
they could do the paperwork. And I know several small business owners who said they tried to do it and the paperwork was so onerous, you know, you know, they're trying to run a business or close down a business if they couldn't keep it open um, during the pandemic. And the paper, they just, you know, sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, I can't do all this paperwork by myself and gave up, which is really unfortunate because, you know, small businesses are really the underpinning of our society and they did not get the help. And, the other thing about that program, there was very little uh, transparency or accountability. You know, it took, I think, 11 different news organizations sued to try and get access to the records of who got the funds. And they were told, well, you know, it's a privacy issue. We can't tell you where the money went. And, you know, so through Freedom of Information Act requests and stuff, they're starting to get some of that information. But um, even the... Uh, the oversight committee in um, Congress that there were, you know, five people appointed to provide oversight. Well, even they didn't have the permission to, to look at who was getting the money. So, you know, when everything's done in secret and, and we don't know what's going on, that's not very helpful either because we can't determine as taxpayers whether the money was well spent. Oh, if there was ever a time for transparency and you would, and the government, which is theoretically us, right? Mm-hmm. We, uh, we should have that kind of transparency. And it's just just exasperating and mind-boggling that this is happening. And I feel that we at least get more awareness, frustrating as all of these circumstances are, with your book really then putting a spotlight on this and giving us insights. Maybe it'll educate us and we'll get a sense of how we might do something and make our voices heard. Do you think, Lisa? Well, right. And, you know, the book has, um, you know, many chapters on different subsidies and, you know, ways that the, that, that this happens. I mean, and whether it's agricultural subsidies or tariffs or, um, you know, state subsidies for stadiums and things like that, there's this just happens on so many levels. It's not just the federal government taking our tax dollars and giving them away to the people that don't need it. It also happens at the state and local level. And when we started this book, we did not understand the, you know, the magnitude of the issue. I thought I had a good handle on it because I understood agricultural subsidies really well and, you know, a few others. But as we looked into it, we realized that this is happening on a grand scale. Um, And I think some of the best work that's being done, the last chapter is all about what you can do as a taxpayer to, you know, change this this system. And some of my favorite um, organizations are all about transparency, all about getting the federal budget online in real time so you can see where the money's going, getting your state budgets online in real time so you can see where the money's going. And once we get used to the fact that that data is available, I think my hope is that taxpayers will start looking at the, I mean, these are websites, for example, the Sunlight Foundation does great work. Um, Openthebooks.gov is another one. There's organizations whose mission is to get all this spending out from, you know, its little hidden spaces and out into the public eye so that we can look at it and say, wait a minute, why is that sports stadium getting, you know, $50 million from me, the taxpayer? Um, so I really recommend that that last chapter is just all about these organizations and how they're doing their work. And then it's up to all of us to, to take that knowledge and make use of it. You know, if you find out that there's something being built in your neighborhood and 
you're paying for it, well, then go to the city council meetings, go to the, you know, go to your legislators and say, you know, get involved and say, hey, wait a minute, that's, I worked really hard for my tax dollars and I gave them to you and I trusted you to spend them on public services. How is the stadium a public service or how is, you know, giving that rich farmer down the street my money a public service? Uh, so, you know, there's many steps. There's getting data available and then getting it out there to the public and then the public using it. So, we're, it's, you know, it's in all of our best interest to, to start paying attention to things like that. Absolutely. And I can remember it was 20-some years ago, 25 years or so ago, when they were building uh, one of the new stadiums here in Seattle, mm-hmm. the baseball stadium. And, and people were against it because of just what was going on in the community at the time and they fought it and yet it was just still overturned and uh, the state government came in and said no we're we're going to get the money we're pushing this forward they have all their little intricate reasons like you know it's going to create more business well it does a little I think but not it still is a much greater cost than what we get back for it I believe isn't it right yeah Yes, it is. And and stadiums are a really good example because there's been enough there have been enough professional sports stadiums built at this point with taxpayer dollars. There's enough data out there and many good studies and books have proven that it's almost always, if not always, a bad investment for the taxpayer. And yet taxpayers keep falling for it. They keep passing, you know, legislators keep, you know, introducing these, oh, you know, we're going to get this great new stadium. It's going to be so great for the local economy. Restaurants are going to be built all around the stadium and this and that. And then it never happens. And yet, for some reason, we seem to be, you know, in the cycle of, oh, well, you know, we want a team. And you see cities fighting over teams and bending over backwards to give them tax breaks and, you know, and all that. And yet every once in a while, a stadium comes along that is built completely with private money and is enormously successful. And taxpayers in other states should look at that and say, wow, San Francisco was able to do it without a single dime of public money. Why can't we do that? You know, because all of these professional sports team owners are extremely wealthy. You can't own an NFL team or a, you know, hockey league team without being very, very wealthy. And certainly have lots of wealthy friends who can also pitch in to build that beautiful stadium that you want built without asking local taxpayers to foot the bill. And yet, I mean, some of these stadium contracts that come up are just appalling where the city will build all of the roads around the stadium. They will exempt the stadium from paying property taxes for decades. And then they will turn around and give the team all of the concession money. (laughs) So the taxpayers don't even get a break on, you know, the concessions or they never get their money back. So stadiums are a really good example of something that, you know, at least in my mind as a taxpayer, I don't really want to pay for it. If you want to play professional sports and go watch them, awesome. But why should my tax dollars be going to pay for that? And I think that's the question that we ask a lot in this book is we're not opposed to the farming industry. We're not opposed to stadiums. We're not opposed to, you know, the energy industry. We just want to know why they seem to think that they need our money to do their job. You know, why can't they do it? These are wealthy industries with lots of money, and yet they keep going to the taxpayer and saying, give me your money, you know, give me a tax break. I don't want to pay property taxes. Let me not pay property taxes. Yes, and how, how far would we as the individual 
get with that. I don't want to pay my property taxes. Well, fine, then you're going to lose your home. That does exactly right. right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we we want we just ask for fairness here for justice, correct? Yeah. 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 No, that's absolutely right. You know, and I always look at it as as an American taxpayer, I I believe that my my paying taxes, giving some of my hard earned money to the government, whether it's state or federal, is is a contract. It's like I will give you that money, and and in return, I expect. You know, safe roads. I expect you know public services. I expect a, a fire and police department when there's emergencies. I, you know, and we can argue about the level of you know what we should be spending that money on. We can argue. You know, some people want to argue about whether they should pay for health insurance or education system or what level of policing or you know um, those kinds of things. We can argue about all that, but those are all basic services that I think we all, at some level, can agree on. But I don't believe that my contract with my legislators is that I will give them my money and they will give it to rich people. Right. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening. And that's what's so, you know, it's interesting because my co-author, Phil Harvey, and I did a previous book to this one that was called The Human Cost of Welfare. And it was all about the welfare system. And it was all about all the, you know, welfare systems and how they help um, poor people and how they work and how they don't work. And but I think we would all agree as taxpayers that we, whatever we can argue about what level we want to help the poor at, how much money we want to give them, how we want to do it, do we want to give them housing subsidies, do we want to pay their health insurance. But we can all agree that helping the poor, I'm willing to put, you know, when I pay my taxes, I'm like, yes, please help, you know, those that are in need. But I don't think there's any taxpayer that would say if their senator came to them and said, hey, I'm running on a platform that I'm going to take your tax dollars and give it to the rich. (laughs) I don't think many taxpayers would be like, yeah, I'll vote for that. And yet that's what's happening. Yes. And that's and then there's outcry in some sectors like we should not be supporting people with welfare. And they're talking about the poor people who are Mm -hmm. barely existing. And yet Mm -hmm. for these individuals who have very deep pockets to then demand and get all the concessions that they do, which is welfare because it's our money. It just Mm -hmm. is mind boggling. It really is. And, you know, a really good example, um, and this is actually a success story um, down in Louisiana for since the 1930s, there's been this small commission that's appointed, you know, that nobody's ever heard of and their job is to give tax breaks to energy companies. So all of those refineries along the Gulf Coast in Louisiana and elsewhere, um, most of them get property tax abatements and don't pay property taxes on these massive pieces of properties that they own along the Gulf Coast. So they're pumping oil out of Louisiana, and we're talking Exxon, we're talking Dow, we're talking Mobil, all of these big corporations that are down there. And for decades, they have gone to this commission when they build on a piece of property down there, and they've said, hey, you know, we really don't want to pay property taxes here. And the commission has been rubber stamping these requests. And a local sort of citizen activist group was looking at the state of Louisiana and saying, look at why do we, why does Louisiana keep ending up at the bottom of the USA Today's rankings of states? Year after year, Louisiana is dead last. They have the, you know, the, the um, highest levels of poverty, um, worst education outcomes, 
uh, really bad health outcomes. You know, what is going on? How come? And these citizens basically were looking at, well, how can that be? We have, we are rich in resources. Look at all these giant corporations that are here. What's going on? And they dug a little deeper and they discovered this little commission that had been rubber stamping these tax abatements. So, you know, if you want your community to have some money to spend on all these things, well, you need property tax income. And so they actually created an organization and um, a nonprofit and they started looking into it and they started going to public hearings and they started complaining about it and saying, hey, this isn't right. We all have to pay our taxes. You know, as you said, you know, if you were to try and get away with not paying your property taxes, you wouldn't get very far. Um, but these organizations, um, this organization just started pointing this out, and their point was, hey, look, you know, look how much better off we would all be if we had property tax coming in from all these corporations. And so what they did was they um, proposed legislation that said, okay, the commission can continue, but it has to have representatives of police departments school districts and fire departments represented so that they can say, hey, wait a minute, we could sure use that money if you guys would pay your property taxes. And they got it passed. And this is just in the last year. So now we're going to be looking at Louisiana to see, you know, how much more money will they be able to get um, when these corporations start paying their fair share in property taxes? Will schools improve? Will public services improve? Um you know, so it can be done, and that's a great example of citizen action where people looked around and said, well, I feel like our community could be doing better. Is everybody paying their fair share? And if they're not, then let's see if we can't make them pay their fair share. Absolutely. It's great to hear a, a good news story such as that. It's encouraging that it, it takes time, it takes energy, but in the end, to know it, it pays off. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't easy. I mean, it was a multi-year effort with lots of people involved, and the legislators were very much against it, and there was lots of lobbying on part of the energy companies, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll we'll leave. We'll leave Louisiana, which is oftentimes what these corporations will do. I mean, look at Amazon when they were looking for their new headquarters space, you know. They were basically, you know, pitting cities against each other and saying, well, we won't go to yours. We'll just go over there if you don't give us what we want. And these energy companies would say that, but the truth of the matter is you can't really pull oil out of the Gulf if you're not on the Gulf, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not like they really could relocate. Um, and you see that a lot in whether it's, you know, those energy companies down on the Gulf or whether it's, you know, uh, another one is movie subsidies, TV and, and, you know, filming subsidies. Many states give, uh, you know, movie companies and, and TV production companies tax abatements and tax breaks and, and all kinds of, you know, grants and subsidies to come to their states and film. And you have to wonder why, because, you know, for example, Hawaii gives away lots of state subsidies for people to come film in Hawaii. Well, where else can you film a tropical island? It's not like, and, you know, of course the film company is going to go whether they get the, you know, the tax break or not, because they need that environment to film in. And yet, you know, the, Hawaii will still go ahead and give away these subsidies that they don't need to be giving away. Because um, we know how movies make extraordinary amounts of money. The they're they're movie moguls. They're not called mogul mm-hmm. for nothing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, those shows like Survivor and you know all the ones that were sort of set in in tropical locales. Well, they had to be filmed in Hawaii. 
I mean, and there was, and they made lots and lots and lots of money. And what did they need? The Hawaiian taxpayers, you know, Hawaii is a pretty poor state when, when you look at the, the, you know, the actual population of the state of Hawaii, not all the visitors, um, they sure could have used that money, you know, to improve their school systems and all kinds of things. Um, and instead they gave it away to, to, you know, film companies. It's, it's, it's really interesting how that happens in so many different industries. And, um, you know, Disney gets all kinds of, of breaks. What does Disney need tax breaks for? The, the amount of money that <laughs> Disney Corporation makes and that their CEO makes, you know, they don't need it. And yet they go, you know, with a straight face to local legislators and their taxpayers of their states and say, hey, you guys need to give us a break. Yes. It, these are the kinds of things that we have a potentially a, a, a an awareness of. But here in this book, Welfare for the Rich, detailing these stories really gives us such important insight so that we have that data, we can do something about it. And one that I thought was just incredible, tariffs. Of course, tariffs have been in the news now for a number of years. Well, for a long time, Mm -hmm. but more recently, they've been there a lot. And the, the thing with the solar panels, it almost feels like that whole story of the solar panels that there's just some other kind of agenda, maybe a political agenda going on with with the tariffs that were put on these panels. Well, yeah, tariffs are, you know, that was of the topics that we covered in this book. It was one that I really didn't know a lot about before we started. And then it was so eye-opening to see how you can use a tariff to just totally change an industry and and how it, it really is such political favoritism of, you know, if you can get a tariff on your product, you know, how you can get a leg up on, on other industries. And, and um, it's and then, of course, you know, up until this administration, we really didn't. I mean, we did have a tariff system, but it was pretty small. But then, you know, President Trump came in and said, hey, I'm a tariff guy and I think we should be putting tariffs on all kinds of things. But it was very selective. It was here and there. It was the steel industry. It was, you know, whatever he felt was, you know, somehow getting an advantage. You know, other countries were getting an advantage on us. And but the problem with tariffs, and it doesn't matter what item it is, is that the that other country isn't going to be paying the the person who's going to be paying the tariff is the end consumer. Because if some guy is importing tires and they used to cost $100 and now it costs him $150 to import them, he's not going to pay the $50 out of his pocket. He's going to turn around and put that that cost on the consumer. So the people actually paying for all those tariffs that we're throwing at everybody is the American consumer. And all the studies that have come out about who is impacted most by tariffs, it's the poor. It's not people who have a lot of money very little of their you know the, their spending money in terms of you know the percentage of their income is going to tariffs but the poor have very little disposable income you know they spend their money on very basic items and a lot of those basic items have really high tariffs on them for example shoes everyday shoes have a much higher tariff on them than high end high heels that are sold you know at Neiman Marcus Um, work boots have a really big tariff on them, but Italian, you know, designer shoes don't, um, school backpacks have a tariff on them. iPhones don't, you know, it's just, it's this crazy thing where if you look at the tariff, the harmonized tariff schedule, which has a list of every tariff, um, on every item, 
um, you just start seeing this pattern of these things, everyday items that get these bigger tariffs on them, and then luxury items don't have tariffs on them. And what that means is that items that the poor need for everyday life, they're having to bear the burden of these tariffs. Um, and it, uh, it doesn't, it's one of the more baffling ones that, um, you know, the, the idea that somehow that tariff is going to punish an, another country is just not borne out by the evidence. The evidence points to the consumer paying that tariff. And the studies that have come out about the tariffs that have been imposed in the last couple of years is that it's increasing the cost of goods for the average American by $2,000 a year. So you and I are spending an extra $2,000 a year just to cover these tariffs that we've imposed on other countries as punishment. (laughs) So we're actually paying and the we who are paying it are the the lower and the middle class. Those who are wealthy, mm-hmm. they don't have to deal with that. So once again, it's the majority of Americans then supporting the the elite upper crust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what's fascinating to me um, about tariffs is that before we had an income tax system, we funded our federal treasury with the tariffs. And way back when, we decided that was a really bad idea, and we decided because it it impedes trade, it, it impedes free markets, it prevents people from trading, you know, happily with each other, and you know, not worrying about you know paying a different tariff to each different country and all that. And we decided that it was much better to just have free markets. Let's just trade with everybody, and um, and and then we'll, we'll tax our own people, and then we'll pay for our own stuff. We'll pay for our own public services. And so then now, you know, tariffs pretty much went away, and now all of a sudden they're back, but we're still paying all the income tax, too, and now we're paying for these tariffs. So it's almost like a hidden tax on on taxpayers, on people who, you know, basically the middle and lower class who are the people who pay taxes in this country or are paying their fair share, I should say. Um, so because there's about – so when we did the welfare book – you know, we looked at who is paying the taxes and who's paying for the programs, and about 40% of Americans don't pay any income tax because they don't make enough money. And then you've got the middle class who is very much paying their fair share because they can't get any tax breaks, and they're paying all their state and local and federal taxes. And and then you have the very wealthy who have all kinds of – yes, they pay a lot of taxes in terms of dollars, but it's a percentage of their income – they are able to take advantage of all kinds of tax breaks and, and um, you know, tax abatements and grants and subsidy, all kinds of things that lower their tax bill. So they really aren't paying their fair share. So the only people really paying their fair share are lower middle class Americans. <laughs> right. And to the tune of, I think, you like 15 to 20 percent, maybe even a little higher in some cases, whereas percentage wise, that upper level is only paying one or two percent. And they have yeah, a I huge, mean, the tax- huge bundle, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they also have, you know, getting back to how does that happen, they're the ones with the, you know, the attorneys and the accountants who can, you know, help them take advantage of tax breaks that just aren't available to the rest of us. And and also to lobby for lower tax rates. I mean, you've seen that happen when this administration came in. The tax rates were all lowered with the, you know, when the new tax law came about. Um, and then corporate taxes were lowered as well. And um, so you have to, 
wonder again, I mean, my, I always get back to the same question is these people are incredibly wealthy. These corporations are incredibly wealthy. They're hoarding cash at this right now. Um, why can't they just pay their fair share? Why do they need my help? I mean, I, I want them to succeed. I want Boeing to succeed. I want Exxon to succeed. That's great. They're employing people. Awesome. But why do they feel the need to get their hand in my pocket? Why is that necessary? And I think that there's, you know, I mean, when you have a president who says, you know, only fools pay taxes, or and when you have, you know, corporate moguls saying, you know, hey, I've got the best accountants ever, you know, I haven't paid my, you know, any taxes in the last 10 years. If that mentality is, is sort of the prevalent mentality, then where's their sense of civic duty gone? Why don't they feel the same need as the rest of us Americans to pay their fair share? Exactly. And that's kind of worrisome. Yes, yes, it is, definitely. And, uh, oh, there's so much we could talk about, but time is not our friend this morning. At least there is the last chapter, as you said in the book, Lisa. So knowing yes. how we can do things, how to fight back and mm-hmm. and. The way to do that is to become informed, read all of this. It's just so enlightening, really important information. And so the book is coming out this week. Just perfect timing for us to get informed. And uh, also you have a website for it, right, Lisa? Yeah, the the website is welfareforthericht.com. And um, the book will be available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can pre-order them already. And then there's also going to be a documentary called Corporate Welfare that will be coming out on PBS in May of next year that is based on stories from the book. So look for that um, next spring. And it actually has the Louisiana story and some other stories from the book in it. So, yeah, you can find us on welfareforthericht.com. Perfect. Oh, this has been so informative. I so greatly appreciate that you and Phil Harvey have written this book. It is really just perfect. So thank you for it, and thank you for taking time with us this morning. Great. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome.